most original and creative talent in our business. Would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles? Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Uh, we are back with uh, our Orson Welles commentaries. And for folks listening for the first time, this is Orson's very first commentary that we're going to bring you today. I had done intros to these on my own, but and later thought, oh, it'd be cool to have a team do this. And then when we started doing them as a team, I, I loved how we did them. And later when we got Vincent to join the team, it was great. So I thought, let's go back and redo some of these where I did the intros. And I didn't realize, I, I thought that I'd just done the intros on two or three or something, but I think I did the first six or seven before I, I brought on people. So uh, it'll be fun to, to go back through those. Uh, so anyway, our, our team for today, we have Terry Phillips here from Imaginaire Theater. Great to see you again, Terry. We, we have Kathy Fuller-Seeley, uh, Jack Benny historian and, and just general historian as well and, and media specialist, pretty cool stuff. Uh, we have Vincent Longo here, who is our oh. Orson Welles specialist for sure and a historian as well. And, uh, and, and Vincent, what are you, you're pursuing right now? You, you've just like gotten out of i'm trying to figure out where you're at in your career where, what's going on because i know there's so i'm i'm just wrapping up my phd here in the next couple months um i'll be starting a teaching job uh where i'm at in michigan in the fall um i got a the book project on orson wells's heart of darkness coming out uh sometime next year and that's where i'm at so really nothing going on in Vincent's life. Pretty, pretty standard stuff there. <laughs> that's amazing, Vincent. That's, that's what, congratulations on all of that, Vincent. And that's Thank you. Thank wonderful you. Thank you. Yeah. So we gave him a few months off so that he could, he could work on all those things. So and then he, he became available. And so we're like, oh, yeah, let's, let's do this. And then we have our friend Zach, who is uh, Zach Eastman, who's just a wonderful fountain of knowledge and ideas and and uh, love having him so i'd rather be a fountain of youth yes <laughs> take back some years yeah yeah it's, kathy's got the idea of boom not the fountain by darren aronofsky just a fountain of youth in general I there know. you go there. i'm not i'm not trying to go for elegance that flops unfortunately but <laughs> <laughs> well let's let's get started with this one this uh these first commentaries are so interesting, and I think I'll go to Vincent first um, to tell us a little bit about the history of the commentaries, kind of why he was doing the commentaries and things and, and anything else Vincent wants to cover. Vincent, are you ready to go with that? I'm ready. I'm ready. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I, I definitely became interested in, you know, Wells uh, later in this first broadcast mentions this letter. And, I, you know, we, we always question whether some of these letters are real, and maybe it is, but I don't know how... He, Anyway, this letter, you know, it sets up the question of why Orson Welles doing political commentaries. And so he gives a couple of reasons, his New York Post column, which I'll return to. But I think there's a, a longer history here that should be acknowledged, which both sets up the format of the commentaries that we hear over the next year and a half, as well as foreshadows the many troubles that he would have. Um, Welles's first sort of foray into anything that resembles the Orson Welles commentaries um, would start with a radio show he had, Hello Americans, in 1942, 1943. It's sort of his 
first major nonfiction radio broadcast, which stemmed from his work um, with the Good Neighbor policy. Um, Wells was sent to South America to make a film that never happened for many reasons, but the many stories and uh, information that he collected, the research that he did, informed this uh, radio show. And it's part, you know, part of the good neighbor policy to try to um, build these relationships with South America to dispel the threat of fascism there. Um, but he also just kind of tells stories and reads research and there's not much like political commentary, a little bit of lectury material maybe. Um, in uh, a little bit later, he has the Orson Welles Almanac, which we've talked a little bit before, which is his attempt at a variety show. I think that that's important for a couple of reasons because he does things in that that he does in the commentaries later, which is like read from literature. You know, he reads from the Bible a lot in the in the in the commentaries, for example, and he has that sort of variety format. He also just talks about Hollywood gossip occasionally in the Almanac and has guests, which he doesn't have guests in this show. But Wells's interest in politics, I think we've talked about this later in the commentaries, though. At this time, he's also campaigning for FDR. He's building a repertoire with um, political insiders, particularly from the left. Um, he has also, for the past year, um, been writing a New York uh, column for the New York Post. But this is particularly interesting because um, by this point, his Post column is sort of known in the industry as a flop. So Wells was brought in, um, I mean, unsurprising, Wells' you know, stuff ends up being flops for various reasons, but the problem with the Post is almost exactly the same problems that happened with the commentaries. So um, he started writing the Posts in 1944. Um, he had a friend who essentially owned it and they, they were sort of um, political, um, politically aligned. But however, they didn't want Wells to talk about politics really, they wanted to talk about Hollywood gossip, um, you know, he can talk a little bit about politics, but kind of keep it light. He, um, his column was on five days a week, but essentially the editors were like, this is, you're getting way too heavy into politics. He has these sort of rants, these long, um, winded ideas about the war and, uh, liberal politics. And so they basically say like, either cut this down, we're going to cut you, or we're going to cut your pay by a lot of money. Um, and so eventually, um, he only gets down to like one day a week, I think. And it is kind of this combination of random thoughts about Hollywood, some political ideas, but um, it essentially started to fizzle out. But he rides that, um, the New York Post, in part into the commentaries show because it's very much the same thing. And as we can see in this first episode, um, they do want him to not just talk about politics, but to talk about Hollywood. And he promises sort of gossipy things and to talk about uh, movies. But I was interested to see that the thing that really drove Lear Radio and um, ABC in particular for this show was Wells was the, um, the host or moderator for ABC's um, coverage of the United Nations Conference. And what they liked about his coverage for this conference at this time was that in their words, quote, he bridged the gap between radio drama and radio commentary. And so what I think, you know, might have set him apart, even though his post um, section was sort of fizzling, is that they were interested in bridging this into radio because he could do it so dramatically. I mean, he wrote very dramatically too, but, you know, there's, there's no equivalent for Orson Welles's booming voice. And so, um, you know, he rides this momentum into this commentaries, but I think Lear Radio, as we talk about later, expects you know, sort of a combination of lights, a little bit of politics, 
and a lot of Hollywood. But that's, um, as we know, is not always what they get. Right. And I think they might have been happy to begin with for a little while because he does kind of do more of that towards the beginning, but it steers more and more kind of into politics as the commentaries progress. And I assume they're less and less happy with him all the time. So. <laughs> Which I think is pretty part of the course for Orson. I think, I think everything starts where everybody goes, all right, let's do this, but let's not indulge you too much. You know, let's, let's try and do this the way that's going to be, you know, easy to sell or whatever. And then Orson goes off the deep end almost every time and, and uh, they go, oh, we can't do it. We can't fund this anymore. We can't do this anymore. But anyway, Terry, what, what are your thoughts on this one? I want to uh, provide a little bit of background for some of the things that he talks about in this pilot episode that might not be familiar to some of our listeners. Uh, the first reference that caught my ear was to a film. Now, keep in mind, this was 1945, and a film came out that year, which he refers to as Uncle Harry. I had not heard of this film before, and I looked it up. Turns out the name of this film was The Strange Affair of Uncle Harry, which was based on a stage play that was called simply Uncle Harry. He mentions in his commentary that one of the performers, one of the stars of the movie was uh, his friend and uh, fellow uh, uh, Ireland performer, Geraldine Fitzgerald, but the star of the movie was George Sanders. And uh, it did okay, it was an interesting movie and a very interesting play. The play had a good run, but that's the, that's the play he refers to. He talks a lot about bullfighting, and, and uh, he does that uh, again in the, the next episode, and we can talk about that. Uh, it, it's a, it's a uh, I don't want to call it a sport, but it's a, let's, let's call it an undertaking that has um, a mixed response to non-Spanish or non-Mexican, um, non-Hispanic uh, people. Uh, not everyone appreciates bullfighting. But uh, Wells did and had a, a long personal history with it, was taught by a great bullfighter, which he, he discusses um, to appreciate the, uh, the art of bullfighting. Uh, I, by the way, I went to a bullfight in Mexico in 1970, 1970, I think it was. And it really is a, a fascinating spectacle. And I learned a little bit about it uh, after the fact. But anyway, pull, uh, Bullfighting is, is a frequent uh, topic of interest to Orson Welles. Um, this letter... I'll throw out there too, Terry, just for a second. Sorry. That people still have to remember that this is three quarters of a century ago that we're talking about these uh, his discussions. And so they're not probably as nuanced on the subject of the bullfighting as we would get if he were to do them in the, in the modern environment. Perhaps. Perhaps. Certainly... Since then, it's it's become very um, what I, I would say it's leaning more to, far more towards the not being supportive of that at least. Well, I'm not sure that's true in the world where bullfighting is still practiced. Well, I agree 100. Certainly, from no, I'm just saying I'm saying like kind of of the mostly uh, yeah folks in in America are listening to us so they can listen to us all over the world and yeah. hopefully we'll we'll get more bullfighting enthusiasts listening now which would be wonderful 
Anyway, no. Keep going, Terry. You're good. I I also want to mention mentions that it's controversial even even when he's talking. He says yeah, that right, several right. times. Yeah, sure, sure. So of it's it's of yeah. I mean, but it's even more so it's... now. So it's, I would think so. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he um, he mentions this this letter from the lady in Weehawken, um, and and the reason I found it interesting was because of the significance of that that town in New Jersey, which. Uh, by now is perhaps best known through the uh, the Broadway musical Hamilton for the place where Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr had their famous and uh, fatal for Hamilton uh, uh, duel. But um, I, I lived not far from Weehawken at one time and did not visit the spot where, where Burr shot Hamilton. Maybe next time I'm on the East Coast, I'll, I'll go back there. It's probably a plaque. Um, and finally, uh, I want to say, in preparing for this conversation today, I went back and watched a, a number of interviews with Orson Welles, and the earliest one that I found that was really telling about him and about these commentaries was one that was recorded and, and broadcast in 1960. Uh, it was called The Paris Interview, and it was... Um, conducted by an, another actor named uh, Bernard Brayton, who, along with his wife, Barbara Kelly, who were both from Canada, but had quite a career in Great Britain, um, were, um, you know, sort of, sort of on Wells' uh, stature in terms of fame, and uh, who did a, a, a quite interesting interview with Wells, including getting Orson Wells to talk about his interest in politics. And he said in this interview that he cared more about politics than show business. And that if he had to sacrifice his career as, a, as an actor, director, writer, uh, but he could hold on to his uh, opportunities as a citizen and as a political commentator, that he would gladly do that. It was a passion for him. Show business, as he said, was a way of making money. And I don't know how genuine those sentiments were, but that's what he said. And it, it made it easier for me to understand why he cared so much about doing these commentaries. He said he thought that it was his right and maybe even his duty as a citizen to talk about world affairs and national affairs. And of course, he also talked about show business. But he also mentioned in that same interview, which was done in a Paris hotel room, by the way, which is why it was called the Paris interview, he mentioned that he didn't think it was appropriate for artists to comment on their art, uh, that uh, it was fine for them to talk about anything else, but it really was a little out of place for them to be critics of, you know, in his case, if he were uh, best known as a, as a filmmaker, that he should not be commenting on films. It didn't stop him from doing it, but that was an interesting perspective, I thought. And in all of these, including the number of times he appeared on uh, Dick Cavett's program and on The Tonight Show, that bit by bit, I got to understand a little bit better Orson Welles' interest in politics and in having something to say about the world. Um, the, the very last thing I would recommend to you all, if you haven't seen this maybe most infamous uh, Orson Welles' appearance on The Tonight Show, was uh, the other guest was uh, Robert Blake. And when Blake came out, Johnny introduced him to Orson Welles and he said, have, have you met Orson Welles? And Robert Blake said, um, 
you make wimpy look skimpy. And of course, that got a big laugh from everybody. And then Orson Welles said, well, I'm fat and you're ugly, but I can go on a diet. Oh, it's kind of inspired by the uh, the Winston Churchill conversation with the woman who uh, at a dinner party, uh, Churchill referred to as being ugly. And she said, you're drunk, sir. And he said, well, yes, but in the morning I'll be sober. <laughs> that's how you defend yourself against a future murderer. That's what, that's what you do. That's exactly what you do. Uh, oh, alleged murderer. Oh, yes, alleged. Sorry, alleged. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, Kathy, what, uh, what stood out to you in this one? I just, um, it's so great since we spent um, um, so many delightful months of uh, 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 commenting, listening to, and experiencing the rest of the commentaries. It's wonderful to go back and experience the first ones again. Um, uh, because uh, much like we found in doing the history of Jack Benny shows, things that were set up at the beginning continue all the way through. And I can appreciate that going back to the earliest episodes. I was just struck by the intimacy um, of this. Um, I'm used to, um, um, since uh, I'm used to listening to old radio performances that are big on production values, you know, big orchestras, you know, lots lot of, and the very intimacy of just, you know, Orison and a microphone uh, helped by the quality of these recordings of, because these were done live. Am I, I am correct that these were originally done live or were they done as no, recordings? Kathy, they, were, they were recorded. Aha, okay. Well, but nevertheless, it's only 1945 and uh, the quality of the recording is superb, but just the intimacy really struck me. And the fact that he's talking about um, uh, that he wants letters and we will, you know, I can then anticipate the uh, amazing letters we're going to hear um, uh, him discuss. So By both really his audience that. and himself, probably the letters that he will be receiving, but I'll see. <laughs> uh, we'll pop over to Zach. Uh, Zach, this is, you're new to our whole uh, talking about the commentaries and we've we talked to he did this for basically a year and and we we've gone through all his commentaries but i think it's it's cool to get somebody that's coming in maybe fresh i don't know if you've listened to the commentaries before this or if this no. is your first exposure to the commentaries if it is i think it, it you're in for an exciting little ride here with with orson and our gang talking about him but uh, go ahead what were your thoughts on it Zach? well yeah no these are the first time i this is the first time i've heard these however i i guess i'll start by posing a question because not too long I, with orson wells i i tend to stick to the film career as a first and foremost mm -hmm. um with radio about a close second or third um because i the stage work fascinates me just as much like there's there's too many facets of orson to not get interested mm -hmm. um but um uh, around uh, the, not too long ago i recently um encountered the pbs american uh experience doc the blinding of isaiah wardick jr mm -hmm. um and i'm curious if these commentaries are the one are the resource that he used for um they are okay so uh i i won't make my leanings secret uh wells and i share a lot of opinions um uh, in certain respects but um, the, uh, the thing that I found eternally fascinating about this is that this is a post-war commentary show that's really pushing, that's really pushing on what a normal American audience will tolerate. 
Um, Wells has never made his political leaning secret throughout his entire career. Um, he had no shame in letting his views be known in several factors. And what I find interesting about how he's using this platform is that the first episode right away is a defensive tactic. And it's almost like in a modern context, that seems a little bit, you know, like specious, but with Wells, it makes sense. And with this content, it makes sense. Um, right at the beginning, he is establishing the fact that this is not going to play by anybody's rules other than Orson. And the one thing that Orson wanted more than money was control. Um, he ex ex exemplified that with Kane. And I, I do feel that him talking about Geraldine Fitzgerald for un this Uncle Henry film uh, was interesting in the respect that like it, it was a it's another example to my mind of like the way Wells gets maligned by his critics for being an egotist, like a sole egotist with nothing else on his mind. Like if this is his show and he is exerting his control, then there's no reason for him to speak kindly of, uh, of former Mercury players who might've gone on to do better things or have more steady work and career in the, in the film industry. So it's an example of, the fact that Wells is not this braggart, like egotist that in 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 a sole purpose, like he he is that, but he has an actual kindness and affection to the people he's worked with. Um, clearly, his career, his uh, relationship with Joe Cotton wasn't fully strained by Magnificent Ambersons, so he was able to still go to a bullfight with them. Um, and we all, and most of us, I'm sure here know that Joe Cotton along with a lot of other people, wrote to Orson while he was in South America, like trying to explain why the changes to Ambersons were going to be made. And, um, but obviously it's a sore subject all around. Um, the other thing on the commentary is the, the letter to, the, the, the whole letter to Weehawken, uh, letter from Weehawken fas fascinated me because he doesn't like get vitriolic, really. He just stands his ground. Um, and I, I think in an overall sense, I appreciate that he does these because press of the era, every time I've looked at it, always seems to be, from a mainstream point of view, like very slanted towards a post-war viewpoint. And it's interesting to hear a commentator on another side that's kind of looking at things with foresight. Um, and it's almost it's kind of chilling to listen to in some respects because you realize what's to come in, in a lot of regard. Um, uh, the idea of we're just coming out of this war and like the, the mention of the Japanese emissaries turning, our back, turning their backs to the uh, occupying forces of America was very interesting because we, we have this vision in our minds of Japan making peace rather quickly and suddenly they're on our side, but there's a lot of tension with American occupying forces in Japan post-war. It's exemplified through their cinema, um, especially like culminating from a pop culture standpoint with Godzilla or Gajira. And I, so I, I think it's like an interesting time capsule that doesn't always exist from this era. Like, and, and the fact that it's made this readily available, like from the, from the, um, from the public domain side of things or from the uh, university site from which we listened is, is very, very fortunate to us as people who are enthusiastic about our past. 
Um, also, there's a lot of mention of Rita Hayworth. So he and Rita are still together at this point. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to kind of listen to the development of that, if that's what's to come, because it's not too long after that they're, that they're separated, but then he gets on board for a lady from Shanghai and I don't want to get started on the multiple stories of how Lady from Shanghai came to be because what when you think you know the full story, you realize you don't know the full story because um, you either believe Wells or you can believe William Castle, apparently, as I found out recently that apparently William Castle was instrumental in getting that movie made and news to me. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I, I, I don't want to drone on too long, but I, I just think it's interesting that somebody gave him this platform and let him run with it for more than one episode. I think I'm shocked that there's a, a second episode because it sounds like if this is going to happen, you would have stopped this immediately. Like you would have like, you would have just shut that down right quick, but props to, props to the network for giving him that time as long as they did. Um, I'd be curious to see if any press of the era gives a, gives gives a response to the commentaries that are in full where you can get the full range of opinions from the public and how how much did people engage in this show maybe vincent knows and if you do i'd love to know yeah i mean i can talk a little bit about that i mean uh, i think uh, i'll comment on what you said before though as a preface to that you're 100 percent right that this episode is in in very in uh, very much a sort of a setup, a defense for what, what's to come. And you can see this. Wells sets himself up at the very beginning. You know, he says something like, um, we don't have to agree on everything, but we can still be friends. Like these are things people say before they say extremely controversial things, right? <laughs> but in this episode, he doesn't, he, what he says isn't really that controversial, actually. He alludes to some things that he's going to say. So one thing that I like about this episode is that he mentions, albeit very briefly, some uh, recurring themes that he has throughout the commentary. So one is sort of the, the idea of the Marshall Plan, that we have to be involved in the reconstruction of Europe and the spreading of democracy other places. But he doesn't really go into it. You know, he says something like, we must continue to be moral and economic leaders. Um, but he, he's couching it also in this democratic rhetoric, right? He's constantly mentioning like, I'm going to speak about the Constitution. I'm going to speak about the four freedoms. That's why we fought. And so I think he's actually yeah. doing a really good job of like trying to say, uh, you know, I'm not going to be, I'm, I'm going to be controversial probably, but like, I think the things that really get him in trouble later, uh, race relations, labor rights, um, sort of extreme economic theories, I guess is what I'll just call it for now. He, these don't really come up now. So I don't think really, you know, his, his idea about Korea and fascism, I think, you know, fascism is the enemy. Everybody agrees. People disagree on communism. So he's sort of hinting at that. Like we need to compete with communism. We don't need to just trash it. This is another idea that continually comes through because Wells right. sort of believes that we can pull a little bit of from communism. So there's some underlying, you know, sort of uh, controversies, but they're not really here. The one thing though that I thought was really in relation to sort of his setup his defense of uh, what he's going to do here is that he calls himself like a common man. Like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm in Hollywood, but like, I'm, you know, I'm a common man. And I'm going to speak like a common man. But I think there, you know, in, in many ways, as we see throughout this commentary, there couldn't be anything less from the truth. And in fact, he uses the opposite rhetoric later, which is like, you know, especially with the Isaac Woodard stuff. Oh, I have investigators. I've sent investigators. Like I am a force, you know, he's, he's um, literally friends with FDR 
at one point in the commentaries, he goes to the White House to visit Truman. Like, he's not this person that's super distanced from all these things. And so, um, you know, he's trying to play himself as a more common American to sort of an intimacy thing, as Kathy was saying. But, um, you know, eventually he shows his card. So I did like that. Your other point about um, Uncle, Har uh, Uncle Harry, right? Um, yeah. I did like that from both Terry and Zach. Um, I think we shouldn't, we should, um, shouldn't forget two things. One is that it's Wells talking about films. And I think that's what people, the people want him to do. Um, he was very good friends with Geraldine Fitzgerald. So good friends, in fact, that the gossip is often that her son, Michael Lindsay Hogg, is Wells' yeah. son. That's always the gossip that people, um, I'm not going to say one way or the other. I will say that I've always been struck on how similar they look, uh, and how similar they sound, but um, you know, certainly they, Geraldine and Wells are extremely good friends. And so I'm not sure that the film held up to the merit that Wells says it does, but, you know, he's going to use his position as he does to forward his personal, um, beliefs and spots. And he does that a lot later with his own, you know, his own, um, stage show of around the world. So again, we see these common threads throughout here, but, um, Anyway, yeah, I think I think you're right. This is a defensive episode, and he does quite well. Um, eventually, those defenses will break down as he shows himself to be an insider and a burning, burning, burning liberal. Um, yeah, uh, very excited by politics um, above all things, which is, I think, what I love most about the comedy. We, we have that story too about him uh, being the reason that Joe McCarthy exists, which I. I, I you know, uh, if you're going to have him uh, uh, run for the Wisconsin Senate, you know, th this is a telling example of where his interest was leaning. And Terry brought up, you know, well, you know, like if the show, the, the show stuff is just for money. The, 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 the thing that I always remember is, is that I think Wells like curved around in a bunch of different interests, but he said years later, and I think it's the telling thing of what he was feeling at any given moment post Kane is that like, you know, I should never have gotten to making movies, but it's like saying I should have never been married to that woman for 30 years, but I love her, you know, like, so that, that tells me that like, it's almost like he's trying to find something to cushion the blow that has come to him since Kane and Amberson's and he's posturing himself in a different auspice. This is a time too, when he's like, taking radio gigs like ghost guest hosting the Benny program and really kind of, I, I don't want to say cashing in on the celebrity, but he's definitely using it to benefit him where it's needed. And uh, like this, pol this political through line that he has, it seems like, it, it seems like there's a desired effect to actually instill change at certain points. It's not till the fifties, I believe when he like kind of books it for Europe like just kind of within the current climate um, that had existed and the fact that somebody attached to him was a part of a federation that was like a, a front. I don't remember this detail in full, so somebody will definitely have to correct me. Um, but to hear him even discussing the small things that he does, I think just kind of blows my mind. I just, I wasn't expecting something of this forward nature to exist and to now know that this is the same thing that he was using as the platform for Woodard, like it, it really gets me excited for what's to come. Because if it's if it's things like labor relations as well, 
that's going to be a fascinating bumpy road to yeah. listen to. He'll end up doing uh, at least five episodes on Woodard, which is uh, mm-hmm. interesting for sure. Or as Orson likes to call him, Woodward for some reason. But anyway, I'm not changing the script. Look, I, re- I read it the way I said it. We're just going to roll with it. But it is. Anyway, I I think uh, Kathy, go ahead. You had well, that's, I just wanted to um sort of r- remind us. I know we're going on long, but it's it's a it's the start of a special journey. Oh, yeah. That this episode, September sixteenth, nineteen forty five, is only a week after the surrender of Japan. This is literally the end of World War Two, and um uh, you know. Uh, we think that you know that America should be all just going off to Disneyland, Disney World, and and just spending all their time celebrating or saying, "Oh, finally it's over," or being shocked about um, uh, the uh, atomic bomb. And Orson in the coming weeks is going to get to all those things. But to just as Zach had said, thank goodness we have these things. But this very moment. Um, uh, to realize that not only is the war ended, but it leaves so many issues that are suddenly I- important, as in what are we going to do about Korea? Or Orson's um, uh, a comment that uh, America must take a leadership position now, because uh, certainly a whole lot of Americans were going, oh, thank God we're done with that. Let's go back to our isolationism that we'd had for so long. And he really is sort of helping to um, push and lead us uh, lead the country into the responsibilities it really needs to take up now. So it's a good reminder that the Marshall Plan wasn't a universally approved of right. plan, and I think that there's a thought in our minds when we listen to comedy shows of the era or mainstream shows of the era when they mention these things. And I mentioned comedy specifically because they were able to get the most topical within the fanciful realm. You you get an impression from most people who listen to this as something that it was universally supported and it must be defended and it's it's one of the right decisions. And then you get into the 50s and you have a lot of talk of, you know, the anti-communism and everything that's like, this is firmly American. When you dig through the surfaces, you realize these are all controversial issues. These are all things that people had to decide upon. You know, like we, we've had to be reminded in the last couple of years about how the isolationist movements and America First kind of movements have a lot of seedy underdwellings from an undesirable location and so these are examples of like no this this is a plan that had to be sold to the american public this was not something that just everybody was on board for because not everybody wanted to pay for everything you know like it's it's the same things we deal with today like nobody wants to pay for things that could be of benefit down the line because they don't see an immediate reaction or an an immediate gain off of it you know right right no, I, I think uh, I think we're in for a great ride with these Orsons. I, I think, as you've seen today, they bring up a lot of discussion points for us. And uh, I'm just warning our audience, these episodes are 15 minutes long that we play of, of Orson. And sometimes our intros to them are three times as long as the episode itself. And that's okay. And uh, oftentimes that's not the case. But of course, for this first one, like Kathy was saying, it's so important to get its place in history. For me... Uh, just the fact that Orson did this at a, essentially the time that I'm most interested in learning more about. It's because I feel like the war is covered really well. 
and then uh, as as we mentioned and and you'll hear me in future commentaries talk about this too and all of us talk about this but but then sort of it jumps forward to the next thing we really get into and learn about is McCarthyism and the, and the 1950s and so forth and this whole end of the 40s isn't I just it's not covered that well in our in our history classes and so forth and so to get someone who's going through the end of the war and taking us through the, the beginnings of NATO and the beginnings of a lot of these things is is just really interesting to to hear about and and I think it's um, it leads us some insight into the history of our country and the history of the world. So with with saying that, we'll let you go and enjoy Orson. Please don't turn this off. Listen to the, what Orson has to say. It's at least as important as what we have to say and probably more so. So we will see you folks next time. Thank you so much. Hello, this is Orson Welles. I've come to call. I've come to visit with you for a few minutes, and with your permission, every week at this time, we'll have a little conversation about this and that, about people and the things they're doing all over the world. I'll try to have a story for each time, and I'm going to speak my mind about the news. You know, we don't have to agree on everything to be friends. This is a free country. That's how come I'm talking to you now on this new program. I'm no more of an expert than you are. I haven't got a stable of spies working for me in Washington and Hollywood, but I've got a whole lot of interesting friends and I meet a lot of people. These broadcasts are about those people and what I hear from them. Today's is about a new movie, about a bullfight, and about the trouble in Korea. But first, a few interesting words from our announcer. You may never have heard of Lear radios. Well, the name Lear may be entirely new to you. But it isn't new to airplane pilots. Far from it. To airmen, the name Lear and Lear radios mean a lot. For it was way back in 1930 that Lear began to build the especially trustworthy and precise radios that aircraft operation calls for. And for 15 years, Lear's reputation has grown in this exacting field. So to men whose lives and planes must rely on their radios, the name Lear is part of their language. Now, for the first time, you can have a home radio that carries the name Lear. It's a name destined to become as well-known to the general public as it is today among airmen. Think of this when you see the Lear home radio. Since 1930, Lear has been the name men fly by. Now, here is Orson Welles. I'm sure you've seen the pictures of the Japanese soldiers greeting our occupation forces with their backs turned... Seems it's a mark of high respect turning your back on somebody in Japan. Doesn't make much sense, but then a few things we're doing don't make much sense either. In the Far East, we're turning our back on something too. But more of this after a few less weighty matters. First, about mystery stories. Well, currently, the dullest mystery is the one about Hitler. And the best mystery is Uncle Harry. Uncle Harry isn't a relative of mine, it's a movie. Hitler, nowadays, is just a blown-up rumor in the papers. Another stale guess that Schickelgruber is still alive, as if anybody cared. But you will care about Uncle Harry while you're watching it in the picture house. One of the stars, Miss Geraldine Fitzgerald, makes you care. I'm very proud of her. We graduated from the same theater over in Dublin. And I knew she was a real actress, and I mean a real one when I brought her over from Ireland to join the Mercury. She proved herself with us in New York and then went on to Hollywood, where, up to Uncle Harry, she's been mostly wasted. 
Now, however, those in movie land who push the push buttons and push people around are sitting up and rubbing their sleepy eyes. Seems a great artist has been found, the kind who wins little gold statues at the end of the year. If you haven't scheduled anything for tonight, and if it's playing near you, see Uncle Harry. I think you'll agree. Well, right after this broadcast, Joe Cotton, his wife, and my wife are going to a bullfight. No, the sport hasn't been taken up in Hollywood, but with gas for sale again, Mexico's an easy four hours, even on pre-war tires. Joe and Lenore have never seen a bullfight, but Rita and I are fans. Aficionados, to be more technical. And if you've never seen a bullfight, please don't say we're bloodthirsty and cruel to dumb animals. We aren't, and neither are the thousands of good Spanish-speaking people who go on Sunday to the corrida instead of the races or to the ball game. Of course, a bullfight isn't a game. It isn't even a fight. If the chances were equal between the man and the beast, there wouldn't be any bullfighters. There wouldn't be any fighting bulls, either. They'd all be murdered by wooden mallets instead of steel swords, and the strain would vanish. You know, a fighting bull is bred to be the most dangerous animal on earth. I can swear to that because I faced my quota in Mexico and in Spain, too, pre-Franco, of course, and I'm just as scared of them as I am bad in my amateur way at fighting them, which, believe me, is plenty. A matador spent a couple of months in our house teaching Rita to work with a cape and the muleta recently, besides which there's a lot of bullfighter in her blood, so you can be sure that if the cottons don't, our family will know positively wherefore we cheer and whistle this afternoon. A couple of weeks back, Luis Procuna fought in Tijuana. He's handsome with a white lock in his temple where a horn didn't miss him one afternoon. The ladies love him, and Mexicans will tell you he's the most popular and glamorous of the younger toreros. Well, the second bull the other Sunday was pretty good for Luis, so they gave him an ear, which means he had a hit on his hands, and we brought him up to Hollywood for a little party. Now, most matadors come from families that aren't very well-to-do, and Procuna's no exception to the rule. He wanted to spend the night in the biggest hotel possible, so we took him downtown to the Biltmore. Alone, in a grand suite of rooms, Louis started looking for the shower, opened door after door in his quest for it. Finally, the door to the hall. It snapped behind him, and the great star of the bullring found himself trapped in an excruciatingly public place with no word of English and no clothes except a bath towel. He was rescued eventually, but only after spending a terrified hour and a half cowering in a broom closet. He says he'll take the bull ring any time. Oh, before I forget, please write me your suggestions and reactions to this program. As a matter of fact, I already got one letter. It was from a woman in Weehawken who read the announcement of this new series, and all she wants to know, for heaven's sake, is who do I think I am and where do I get off becoming a radio commentator? My time's running out, but I do want to answer that lady's letter. Dear madam, there are no colleges for commentators. They just do it because they want to, and they go on doing it if the public doesn't stop them. Being an actor, which means pretending to be somebody else for your living, does not keep a body from thinking for himself, and that's what I'm going to do out loud if you and a few other people will permit. You know George Denny, the respected moderator on America's town meeting of the air, used to be an actor. We have a couple of actors in Congress and a lot of stage-struck senators. I'm old enough to vote and I can read. Someday... That won't be enough to make a man an editorialist. But right now, it gets me in. 
along with a lot of men you accept because you never heard of them doing anything else before. Most of these men will always be my betters. But a few are doing a lot of harm to the things I happen to believe in and love and want to serve. If you will stick with me for a few broadcasts, I'll try to let you know what those things are. I don't believe I speak for a minority opinion, so you and I probably agree about those things, or most things. We'll leave out the bullfights. I write a newspaper column you can read if you're curious. I'm one of the editors of a magazine called Free World. Among others, an American president and a British prime minister have been contributors, but don't think I'm going to campaign for anybody on this program. However, you may find me on an occasional soapbox, but be sure I'll be speaking then on behalf of those notions which were first drafted into our Constitution and our Bill of Rights. What's going on over in Korea, just for instance? Madam, I'd like a word about that. Japanese officials, the original aggressors, are being kept on in that unhappy little land to, quote, maintain order, unquote. It's a crazy extension of our discredited program in Italy where the victors in an anti-fascist war, did their darndest to keep fascists in power to maintain order among the anti-fascists. Didn't work out very well. The idea was to suppress communism by suppressing democracy. It encouraged communism. An unbroken line of disillusioned Italians, day after day, marches into the Communist Party because we seem to be afraid of our own political principles. Somebody should tell our military governors and we've been having quite some success with those principles at home for quite some time. Our top brass said of the Italians what Britain said of the Greeks. They aren't ready for freedom, which you may be sure is so much Simon pure baloney. The very first thing people who have been living under tyranny are ready for is freedom. The whole idea of liberation is liberty. We fought a war in the cause of the four freedoms, and now some of us seem to be sorry the victory was so complete. These are the same men who tried to tell us we could stay out of it, that Japan didn't mean us any harm, that we could do business with Hitler. These men were afraid of what we might win if we went to war. Their fears were justified. We won everything they didn't want. We are now committed to moral as well as economic leadership in a world struggling out of the dark ages. We will not abandon our responsibilities any more than our fighting men abandon their guns. But our administration in the lands we've set free is jerry-built, and all too many of our administrators are facing away like the beaten Japs from the outcome of our great conquest over fear and greed. The dazzling fact of this American peace calls for the same brave, big spirit which illuminated our part in the battle, the unbudgeted courage that bought the issue of that battle, the most terrible in all times. We are not little people. We are the bearers of man's brightest torch. The news from Asia is unworthy of us all. The Koreans have been assured that it is temporary, but the ugly truth is that we are using Japanese despots to protect Korea from the Koreans. Doesn't look well in the daily press. And our sons and daughters will find it unpleasant reading in their history books. With the same warped thinking, we encourage the rise of Nazism. 
Hitler, you remember, was to be a bulwark against Bolshevism. Now the leftward trend of Europe, a natural result of the war, alarms the same citizens who gave aid and comfort to the war makers. Their farthest horizon stands at the tip of their noses. They are even more stupid than they are wicked. Since the atom bomb, we can no longer permit them to organize mischief. If what we fear from the Koreans is a move toward Soviet Russia, we must not promote that move by representing ourselves, however temporarily, as the backers and guardians of any part of the criminal Japanese command. Our democracy is not so weak a thing that we dare not trust it to competition with other political ideas. I've said this before and I will say it again. We cannot fight communism. We must compete with it. By suppression and retreat, we can only lose. As competitors in the high business of man's betterment, we will win. We will win that contest as we have always won. Madam, this is a great moment, the great moment in history. None of us, however humble, however inexperienced, can keep his silence if he can speak at all and live with himself. And I won't preach at you. I'm here to interest you in things that interest me, to start some arguments, maybe, to stimulate some conversation. I'll try to keep you amused, madam, and I am very sincerely and as ever, your obedient servant. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's almost time for me to leave you. If it's good enough, I'll tell you about the bullfight next week, but our main topic will be something else. A word about it in just a minute. First, our announcer has a few excellent thoughts for you. For over 15 years, Lear has specialized on ultra-precision radios for airplanes. Now, Lear is producing home radios, and just as you would expect, these radios benefit from this tradition of fine craftsmanship and precise engineering. There are many styles and models of Lear home radios. Some have television. Some include high-fidelity, static-free FM. There are handsome console models with record players and automatic record changers. And some will have Lear wire recording that you've been reading about. You'll find, too, that with all their fine background and precise construction, Lear radios compare very favorably in price with less distinguished radios. They range from the top of $500 all the way to a table model at $19.95. The only way to appreciate fully what Lear is contributing to home radio is to hear these new radios yourself. Soon you can go to your Lear dealer and have him play them for you. We're sure you'll agree that you'll get more radio value for every dollar you pay in the Lear radio. And now, back to Orson Welles. Next week, we're going to talk about the greatest man in modern popular music. We'll have a word about Congress and the elections abroad, and it seems Hollywood is boiling with a fight about the USO entertainment overseas. Bob Hope is lined up on one side of the argument, and Frankie Sinatra on the other. We'll look into the matter, and I'll also have something for you on the revised point systems for discharge. A couple of less hefty items go with us. There'll be a story you might like, maybe a little surprise you'll like a little more. And if you'll make this 15 minutes a weekly arrangement between us, I'll be very happy. Until next time, then, my sponsors, the makers of Lear Radio and I remain, as always, obediently yours. The opinions of Mr. Wells do not necessarily represent the views of Lear Incorporated. This is the American Broadcasting Company.